Welcome to the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Dr. Robert Creech. For more information about our church and to keep up to date with the latest resources, please visit our website at www.trinitybaptist.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, people of God. The Lord is with you. I saw a cartoon recently. Uh, there's a figure that was supposed, I suppose, to be God stirring a big pot and an angel behind him and says, what are you cooking? He said, Texas. <laughs> so I think that's right. <clears throat> the book of Philippians, a little letter Paul wrote uh, from a prison cell. Uh, we're going to be spending some time with the rest of the summer, but it is such a, a great piece of writing, and one of the reasons it, I enjoy it so much is because it's got a really good story behind it that is given to us in the book of Acts, chapter 16, about how Paul established that church, how there came to be a church in Philippi at all. Paul had made one journey through Asia Minor, establishing churches, and then had come back to his home church in Antioch. And there was a controversy that arose there about whether or not and under what conditions non-Jewish people, Gentiles, should be accepted into this movement following Jesus the Messiah to be, allow them to become Christians. And there, were, there was a faction that said they must be converted to Judaism and undergo circumcision and uh, proselyte baptism and accept the law if they are going to come into the church and others said no it is by grace only by believing in Jesus as the Messiah and so the two factions there was a conference held down in Jerusalem and Paul and Barnabas went down there and Peter was there and the leaders of the church in Jerusalem and after much discussion and study of scripture and prayer they concluded that God was clearly accepting Gentiles into Christ, the Christian church solely on the basis of their faith in Jesus the Messiah without any additions coming from the former practices of Judaism. And so James, the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, wrote a letter to send out to the Gentile churches to let them know about the decision that had been reached there. So Paul and uh, Barnabas returned to Antioch and shared the letter up there. And then they thought it would be good to take the letter out uh, to those churches they had already established. Uh, <clears throat> Barnabas said, let's ask John Mark to go with us. He had been with them for a while on the first journey, but he had abandoned them, and Paul was not about to go with him again if he couldn't trust him, and he felt like he could not. So Barnabas and John Mark split up with Paul. They headed out one way, and Paul took a fellow named Silas, and they went through Cilicia and Syria and visited the churches that they had previously established, but then they felt like, we need to keep going and preach the gospel in other places, and that's when it got a bit dicey for them. They were going to go down into Asia Minor further, but the book of Acts says in Acts 16.6 that the Spirit of God would not permit them to go there. And so they headed up toward Mysia and Bithynia, and said, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to do so. And so they sort of bounced south again and ended up at a dead end at a place called Troas, right at the sea. They've gone as far as they could, and now the water's in front of them, and they don't know what to do next. And so they clearly prayed and talked about it and sought God's leadership. And during the middle of the night, the Apostle Paul had a vision, a dream, 
of a man from Macedonia just across the waters, a man from Macedonia saying to him, come over here and help us. So the next morning they gathered for breakfast and Paul says, let me tell you about my dream. I dreamt of a man from Macedonia inviting us over there. So maybe that's where we should go next. And so they boarded a ship, crossed the waters and went to this little port city called Neapolis and from there into Philippi. Uh, the place where the Philippian church would grow up. When he got to Philippi, things uh, became really interesting. First, he was preaching down by a riverside to a group of women that had gathered there for prayer on a Sabbath. And one of the women named Lydia, a wealthy businesswoman, uh, gave her heart to Christ, believed in the gospel. And she invited Paul and his crew, which now consisted of Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, uh, he invited them to come to her house to stay while they were in Philippi. And it's probably in Lydia's house that the church in Philippi began to form up. Lydia and her household and her friends. Paul was walking through the streets of Philippi a few days later, and there was a demon-possessed slave girl who began to follow him everywhere he went and yell really loud that this man is a servant of the most high God. Listen to him. Well, you can get better advertisement than that. And so Paul finally had enough of her yelling and turned around and cast the demon out of her and set her free in the name of Jesus. But when she lost, when the demon left, she lost this capacity that she had been given by the demon to foretell the future in some ways. And the people who owned her were pretty angry about now they were, she was a nonprofit uh, slave. And uh, so she, they were angry and they accused Paul and uh, Barnabas of stirring up things in the city and they were arrested and without trial thrown, beaten and thrown into the deepest part of the prison. And that's when it gets interesting. They are down in the darkness of this dungeon in Philippi. And the scripture says that down there they began to sing and praise God and it says the other prisoners were listening. What I want to underscore there is that this is the most unreasonable Response I can imagine to having been beaten and thrown in jail, to sing praises to God. The God who had brought them to Philippi and now has abandoned them, perhaps that's the way it looks, isn't it? Uh, this unreasonable scene where Paul and Barnabas are in joy singing praises, but it's really important, Luke points out in the book of Acts, the other prisoners was, were listening. Well, you might know what happened next. They, in the middle of their singing, there's an earthquake, and the hinges fall off the, the, the doors of the jail, jail cells, and the prisoners' bonds are loosed, and they could all have escaped. And the Roman jailer, who is responsible for them, drew his sword and was going to take his own life thinking that he would be completely dishonored if he failed to keep the prisoners together. And Paul stopped him and said, stop, do, do yourself no harm. We're all here. And then the jailer asked Paul this question, interesting question to ask, given that the jailer's got no background in Christian theology. He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Where did he get language like that? Maybe the songs that Paul and Silas had been singing, he'd been listening to. And uh, they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And so the jailer took them to his own house. He bound up their wounds. 
he was baptized, and he and his household became part of that little church in Philippi, which now is comprised of a businesswoman and her friends, a former slave girl who had been demon-possessed, and now a Roman jailer and his family. That's what the little church in Philippi was beginning to look like. Paul did not stay there long because of his conflict with the authorities. The next day, he went before them and told them that he was a Roman citizen and had been mistreated, and they quickly apologized and sent him out of town. And he left that church in the hands of Luke, and uh, Timothy, and he went on his way down to Thessalonica, where he planted a church, down to Athens, where he could not plant a church, and eventually to Corinth. But he stayed in touch with those friends in Philippi over the years in many different ways. They often visited him or sent him financial gifts to support his ministry. And a few years later, he is arrested and put in a Roman jail in Rome, he is languishing in a Roman jail. He knows very well he could lose his life. He is awaiting trial. And he writes a letter back to his friends in Philippi. It's a thank you note to thank them for the gifts they had sent to sustain him. It's an explanation for why they're the one who had brought the gift, a man named Epaphroditus, was so long in returning. He had grown very ill and almost died, and Paul tells them about that. And it's a sort of updated missionary newsletter to let him know how he's doing down here uh, in Rome because they're concerned about him. And so he writes this little letter. It's only 104 verses long, a few pages in our Bible. And he writes it from a prison cell and sends it back by his friend Epaphroditus. But the surprising thing about this letter is it's very much like that night in the Roman prison in Philippi. The theme, if there's a theme to this letter, is joy. Sixteen times in 104 verses, Paul either uses the verb rejoice or the noun joy and talks often about, in other, using other words, about the joy that is a part of his life and that he recommends and urges upon these friends in Philippi. It's an odd thing, isn't it, to write about joy from a prison cell. It's surprising. It's unreasonable. And yet it is the very kind of thing that uh, was part of Paul's life with God. Paul could have been wallowing in self-pity and um, talking about how he had served Christ so faithfully and obeyed Christ in coming to Philippi and obeyed Christ throughout his way. Now here he is in a prison cell and it's all come to this. But instead of wallowing in self-pity, he is exuding this thing called joy. He's not just trying to put up a good face before the Philippians so they won't worry about him. He is genuinely expressing what's going on inside of him. It is who he is. And though it's unreasonable that from Rome he should be writing about joy, it's unreasonable, but for the Philippians it was not unbelievable because they had seen him do the very thing right there among them when he was in a jail cell, exuding the joy of Christ. Now, this joy, as Debbie was saying a while ago, is not some kind of giddy happiness. Uh, happiness is tied so closely to happenstance, to what's going on around us, to circumstance. Uh, Christian joy is very different, and it's a little difficult to define, frankly. It's different than peace. They're distinguished from each other, but it's not unrelated to the peace that God gives. Joy is a kind of sense of an abiding confidence in God. It is joy in the Lord. 
uh, a confidence in God. It's a kind of exuberance about life and the ability to see through the fog of circumstances and see what else is going on in the world besides just the evil. There is also the good that God is doing in the world, and joy is the capacity to see that. It's uh, a celebration of Christ's presence and Christ's power, even though the circumstances around us are challenging or painful. It's, it's a kind of uh, contentment, a deep-seated satisfaction with life because Christ is part of it. It may be Philippians 4, 10, and 11. By the way, we're going to read a lot of Scripture today in passing just to illustrate Paul's thinking. We'll go back through Philippians over the next few weeks and spend some time with some of these places. But in Philippians 4, 10, and 11, Paul says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly. There's that word. Now that at last you've revived your concern for me. They have sent him a gift. For indeed, you were concerned for me, but had no opportunity to show it. Not that I am referring to being in need, for I have learned to be content with whatever I have. Joy is related to that. It is this deep-seated sense of contentment or satisfaction despite the circumstances because of the presence of Christ in one's life. And Paul is writing about that kind of joy. I don't know how you explain that kind of response or how we understand that kind of source apart from learning to think very differently about reality. Uh, not being tied to just what our eyes can see or our hands can touch, not being tied simply to the five senses, but to understand that in the midst of all circumstances, there are other things going on, that Christ is present and that God is at work. Paul looks at the word world very differently since he has begun to follow Christ. He sees it through a new lens. His perspective has changed radically, and it's that perspective that allows the Holy Spirit to produce joy in this man and in us. So what is, what can we learn from Paul about that perspective that makes joy a possibility, even unreasonable joy, surprising joy when circumstances would not uh, explain it? One of the things is that unreasonable joy becomes possible when we have a sense of confidence that we are following God's will in our life that we are following God's will. I want to distinguish, there's a phrase I don't find in Scripture that I hear often among Christians that I, I don't think is helpful. We often talk about God's will for my life, as if God's got your name in a book somewhere and a, and a list of things that God wills for you. The phrase in Scripture is simply God's will. It's what God wants. And when we are, as best we can, living toward what we understand God wants in the way that we live and the way that we relate to others and in the things that we do and the way we respond to the circumstances and opportunities that are ours, when we are living toward God's will, unreasonable joy is a possibility at least. That sort of explains his joy in the Philippian jail. How had he gotten to Philippi in the first place? Well, he was headed for Asia, but the Spirit of God, I, I would understand that to mean that God directed circumstances in such a way that Paul and his friends said, I don't think God wants us to go over there. And so they headed up north, and uh, circumstances were in some ways confusing. And it says in Scripture, the Spirit of Jesus forbade them. Well, I, I think, again, it was one of those things where he said, I don't think God wants us to go there. And so they get to Troas, and there's water in front of them. They, where do you go? And the dream comes in the middle of the night, 
And the man from Macedonia says, come over and help us. And they said, we think this is God's leadership. So when they got to Philippi, they believed they were there because God had directed them there. They believed that was why they were there. They were doing God's will. And so consequently, when the persecution came, Paul could absorb that because he believed he was doing what God wants, that he was in the place God wanted him to be. And if circumstances were not pleasant, it was something to be endured. It wasn't something to be complained about. They were following the will of God. Um, that may explain his joy from the Roman cell also when he writes back to the Philippians. In Philippians 1.21, he writes to them, he says, For me, living is Christ and dying is gain. That's a perspective, isn't it? I'm here because I followed Christ. And if I die, it's gain. If I live, it's to serve him. I can find unreasonable joy because... I believe my life has pointed toward doing what God wants. In Philippians 2, 17, 18, he says, even if I'm being poured out as a, a sacrifice, a libation over the sacrifice and the offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. And in the same way, you must be glad and rejoice with me. Even if my life is consumed here in Rome and I'm executed, rejoice with me. I'm doing the will of God. In chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, he says, It's not that I've already obtained all this or I've already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider myself to have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says, best I can, I'm living my life toward the will of God. And because I'm living my life in that direction, when circumstances are difficult, joy is a possibility. Because the joy is found in Christ, not in the circumstances. And he says again in 4.11, not that I'm referring to being in need. I've learned to be content in whatever I have. I know what it is to have little. I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having plenty and being in need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That little verse at the end gets pulled out and stuck on all kinds of objects in Christian bookstores. I've heard it quoted this way. I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. Uh, I can do all things means I can, I can endure. I can, it doesn't mean God helps me win my football games. It means I can endure the circumstances of my life, no matter what they are, because Christ is with me. Joy remains a possibility. If you were making a trip across country on foot by yourself, and it involved travel on some little traveled roads, you might be tempted to turn back if the roads became rough or the paths became dangerous. But if you knew the map you had was accurate and it was leading you in the right direction, if you knew that it was important for you to reach your destination and this was the direction you had to go to reach it, you wouldn't curse the map maker because of the difficult roads or the challenging parts of the journey. And you wouldn't expect that somehow the journey should be easier for you than it would be for other people. You would just accept the difficult terrain as a part of what is necessary to get to where you're going. That would be ordinary. But if 
we were simply wandering on our own and ignoring maps and the experiences and the warnings of other people and along the way found ourselves in the middle of a wilderness, then complaining or turning back or quitting would be a reasonable thing to do. But if you believe that the journey was important, that the map was accurate, that you needed to make it, then you just endure the things along the way. Joy remains a possibility. Oswald Chambers wrote, if Jesus Christ is the life of God and we have to follow him, we must find out what his joy was. It certainly was not happiness. The joy of the Lord Jesus Christ lay in doing exactly what he came to do. He did not come to save men first of all. He came to do his Father's will. In the midst of difficult circumstances, we have options. One possibility is that we can look at those difficult circumstances as evidence that um, it does no good to serve God. Why serve God when this is what we get? Circumstances like this, thrown into a jail cell or whatever the difficulties may be. And we might question our motives for serving him if that's what we ask. Why were we serving God? To get something out of him? Or because God is God? Another option would be that we get into painful or difficult circumstances in the midst of trying to serve God, and we take those circumstances as evidence that somehow we are not following God's will and way. Uh, thinking, then we need to question our expectations. Do we think that just because we're following the will of God, everything should be smooth and easy? It wasn't for Paul, it wasn't for Jesus. A whole long list of stories of people who, following God's will, found circumstances painful, difficult, and hard to understand. Or, when the painful circumstances in our life occur while we are best we can pursuing the will of God, seeking to live the way that God wants us to do, handling the circumstances, the opportunities as best we can faithfully, joy is still a possibility. Joy is not the fruit that is given to those who choose their own selfish agenda. Joy belongs to those who, like Jesus, choose the Father's will. John chapter 15, verse 11 night before he's to be crucified, Jesus says to his disciples, I want my joy to be in you and your joy to be complete. Jesus still has his joy the night before facing Gethsemane and the cross. Unreasonable joy is a possibility when we have a sense that best we know we are stepping into God's will step by step. And then despite circumstances, Christ's presence still sustains us. And this kind of contentment, this Christian joy is still a possibility. That kind of unreasonable joy Paul teaches us, I think, is possible when we can look around and see evidence that God is working in our lives. Uh, it was, God was clearly at work in Philippi. When Paul got there, there was Lydia and her household who responded to God. There was the slave girl who gave, was set free and gave her heart to follow Jesus Christ. There was the earthquake. There was the Roman jailer. All of those things were evidence that around him, God was at work. And so joy is a possibility when even if circumstances are difficult, we can still see through the fog and see that God is working. There's some evidence. And here he is now in a jail cell in Rome. And this is what he writes to his friends in Philippi in chapter 1. I want you to know, beloved, that what has happened to me has actually helped to spread the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else 
that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers and sisters, these Christians in Rome, having been made confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, dare to speak the word with greater boldness and without fear. Some proclaim Christ from envy and rivalry, others from goodwill. These proclaim Christ out of love, knowing that I've been put here for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but intending to increase my suffering and imprisonment. What does it matter? Just this, that Christ is proclaimed in every way out of false or true motives, and in that I rejoice. Joy is possible when you can look around and see God is at work despite the circumstances that may be painful. We might fall prey to the tendency during difficult times in our lives just to look inward. And Paul says we need to learn to look outward and see that despite what is going on in our life that is painful or difficult, God is still working around us. And eyes to see that are eyes that can begin to see joy. God's activity doesn't grind to a halt with our weakness. He's still moving. He's still acting. And that's a reason to rejoice. And Paul says that this unreasonable joy is also possible when we learn to depend on God to work out his purposes in our life, to help us. We depend on God to do what it is he wants to do in us. I I think his perspective was broader than that of that ours many times, where uh, he never assumed anywhere in his writings that God was interested primarily in his happiness or in his comfort. God, Paul says, was interested in his holiness and in his character. And those were the things God was at work in his life doing. In, in Romans chapter 5, he writes, And not only that, but we also boast or rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Paul says we've learned, who follow Christ, we've learned to depend on God to work even through suffering to do his will and work in our life. The God who could take the worst that human beings ever did, crucifying the Son of God, God can take the cross and transform it into an instrument of redemption and freedom and forgiveness. God can take the sufferings in our life and transform those for our good and his glory as well, Paul understands. He says that again in Romans 8, in the verse we know so well. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn with a large family. The the trials, the tribulations, the difficulties, the circumstances, God has the capacity to transform those into something that shapes us into Christ-likeness and makes us more and more reflective of his Son. With that perspective, uh, Paul understands the ultimate purposes of God are being worked out around him and in him. And that idea pervades this letter he writes to the Philippians. He says in chapter 1, verse 6, I love this verse, I'm confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Christ Jesus. God's not done with you. God is at work among you. That's worth rejoicing about. Or in chapter 1, verse 18, yes, and I will continue to rejoice 
For I know that through your prayers and with the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this circumstance will turn out for my deliverance. I'm confident that God is at work among you and God is at work in me to accomplish his purposes. In chapter 2, verse 13, he says, It is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You don't have to look far in Scripture to begin to find one story after another of God using circumstances that were painful, difficult, and yet God transforms for his good and for the glory of his people. I think of the story of Joseph. That's an obvious one in the book of Genesis who uh, just descends lower and lower and lower. He becomes sold into slavery by his brothers. He becomes a slave in the household of Potiphar. Uh, because of a lie, he is thrown into prison, and eventually he is raised up to this place of prominence in Egypt. And when he's confronted with his brothers who started the those dominoes falling by selling him into slavery. He says to them in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, even though you intended to do harm for me, God intended it for good in order to preserve a numerous people as he is doing today. He understood that God has the capacity to work all things together for our good, for his glory. And joy requires us to surrender those inadequate perspectives that demand God focus on our comfort or that God focus on our happiness and exchange those perspectives for a desire for God to focus on our character and our holiness as we walk through circumstances depending upon him. We exchange those things. What Paul's talking about this letter is nothing less than this kind of mature, uh, holistic, mature living in the face of suffering and challenges, anxiety and death. And he says, this is the place, this is, this is the circumstance in which Christian joy springs up and bears root in the darkest of places. Christian joy does not thrive so much in the sunlight as it does in the dark times of our lives. And that's why it's surprising. That's why it's unreasonable. That's why it doesn't make any sense from the world's perspective. It is not our happiness that God is concerned with, but our joy. And he offers that as a gift. He wrote to his friends in Philippi, this word that is God's words to us as well. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. When you believe you're doing the will of God, but circumstances are challenging, rejoice, enter into God's joy. When you can see God's work around you, despite the other circumstances that are challenging, rejoice. When you're depending on God to work out his purposes in you and you want that to happen, rejoice. The Lord is with you, he says. And again, I say, rejoice. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for loving us so much that you never abandon us, using us in ways that we can't understand, giving us strength to endure whatever circumstances we must face in this life. Help us in the middle of all of those things, Lord, like your servant Paul, to be able to rejoice, to find joy in the Lord, to be content in whatever circumstances we find ourselves and learn to live with the joy that Jesus offered us as his gift and that the Holy Spirit produces as his fruit. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, the apostle says that we have a race to run. 
and we lay aside every weight and everything that would hinder us from running our race well. And we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy, the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame, and uh, is seated at the right hand of God. So as we come to the Lord's table today, we come with joy. Uh, we celebrate God's capacity to take suffering and transform it into glory as he's promised to do. He did it through the life and death and resurrection and exaltation of Jesus, and he promises to do it for us as we also take up our cross. As we receive the bread and the cup, we are in effect symbolizing, declaring that we find our spiritual nourishment in following after Jesus, taking our cross and going after him. So scripture says that the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this and remember me. Book of 1 John, the apostle says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we walk after him, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Amen. We hope you enjoyed your segment of the Trinity Baptist Church podcast with Dr. Robert Creech. Join us next week for another segment. For more information about our church, please visit our website at trinitybaptist.org.